This morning our text is going to be Luke 20, verses 9 through 18. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we'll be in Luke 20, 9 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let out to tenants and went to an, and lent it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Uh, Father, as we pick up your word and read Christ's parable, Father, I pray that we would be asking ourselves, how does this apply to my life? Father, I pray you would give us a greater understanding of who Christ is and who you are. Lord, I pray that uh, if it would please you, that you would save through this word. Father, that you would bring to maturity the lives of your children. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Being children of Christ is an exciting thing. It is dangerous to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus was like a lightning rod to anyone who came in contact with him. Everyone bumped in to his incredible authority, whether it be in his teaching, whether it be when he tears the temple apart, whether you be a Jew or a Gentile, Christ demanded all from anyone who would follow him. To come to Christ means your life as you know it 
is over. It means your life as living safely in the background while other important risk-taking people live the important life. It means you're signing up to be on the front lines to controversy. It means you're entering a battle between good and evil. It is not a small thing. It is not a background-like commitment when a person comes to follow Christ. We've been seeing the religious authorities bumping up to Jesus' authority and hating it. Murder is in their hearts. They just don't know how to do it. The crowds love Him too much. Somehow, we're going to find out next week, they got to figure out how to get Rome to kill Him. Because if they mess with Him, they'll lose their lives. And yet, if they let Him go on, their lives as they know it will be over. Sometimes we might think when we read the Gospels that Jesus was only hard for the Jewish leadership to tolerate. But he was also hard for Gentile sinners as well. It wasn't that he wasn't offering forgiveness. He was. But when he did, he said things like this in Luke 9.23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Another translation could be, let him hate himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He's not asking for a momentary one day where I get the courage and I want to submit to Christ and lay my life down today. And then I'll live off that, the authenticity of that commitment the rest of my life. But Christ said to take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You bump into Christ and it's a watershed moment. Water doesn't sit on the peak of a roof. It goes one way or another. we bump into the Christ of Psalm 2 in this text. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. How can we be set free from this Christ? How can we be set free from this God? And the Lord laughs. Verse 5 says, Then He'll speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion. My holy hill. 
Now, how can God say, I've set my king? Unless that king is God himself. He says, I've put him on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, that's the Christ of the New Testament. That's the Christ of the Bible. It's like Lucy and Narnia. Is Aslan safe? No, but he's good. If you're children of God, if you've come to submit your life under Christ, you have thrust yourself into one of the most incredible narratives that will ever play out in real life on this earth. Yet, this world is full of half-hearted believers, so-called believers that want Jesus, all the parts of Jesus except for the self-denying parts. I want Him. I believe in Him. I use all of his words and all of his names and all the verses that are easy and comforting, which Christ is both a lion and a lamb. But as soon as Christ encroaches into my life to where they, there is change, there is death to self, and selfishness and me getting off the throne and Christ being on it at that point. No, 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 no. We saw both the Jews and the Gentiles believe in Christ in that way. In John 9.21, when you have the parents of the young man who was uh, blind and healed, his parent and in John 9.21, his parents said, he'll speak for himself. They're asking, what do you think? And then we have this parenthetical comment where it says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So to really confess Christ, to really know Christ, meant you lose your church friends. Church discipline is done to you, you're out. It's already been determined. Now their son is healed. I believe in Christ in that way. But I'm not going to confess him because then it's skin off my back. You see, we've got to put ourselves in the shoes of those in Christ's day. It's easy just to rip on these Jews, but it's your friends. 
It's your religious friend saying you're now bad. You're following a man with a demon. Or John 7.45, when the officers were supposed to go arrest Jesus and they came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You see what it would cost an officer? Has any of the important religious people believed in him? Oh, you're going with the accursed crowd. You see what it's like to bump into Jesus and his teaching? You see how these officers are at a watershed moment in their life? Paul in Romans 2.29 says this, but a Jew is one inwardly. A circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, speaking of the new birth, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, a true Jew, a true child of God, is one who can follow Christ even when the world says, you're nuts. You're not concerned with those who are rejecting Christ and what they might think of you. So as we come to this text and we are reminded of the context, Jesus has cleansed the temple. He's calling the sick, which were never allowed to be in the temple, to come in. And then he's doing healings inside the temple. And for three days, Jesus takes over the temple. Right before Passover. You say, why would the Jews ever want to kill Jesus during the Passover? They they wouldn't. It would be the last time. They just want to get rid of him quietly. But what are they going to do? Their business is in that temple. Their power is in that temple. They're losing popularity. Their whole life, everything, their values be, is being destroyed by this man who in his authority has taken over the temple. And so in Luke 19.47, we read he was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people, these are the good people, were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people who were hanging on his words. That's their dilemma. Yeah, they would cut his head off right there. They would kill him right there if they could but then their life would be in jeopardy. They understand the watershed moment in one sense. Death has to come to someone, either my life or his life. And so we see in Luke 20 verse 9, after Jesus tied him in a knot in the first eight, verses they come and say by what authority do you do these things and he 
So let me ask you a question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from man? If they say from heaven, Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? Because he said, this is the son of man that takes away the sins of the world. If he says from man, then they'll, the crowds will turn on us. So they said, we didn't know. And right after that, Jesus goes right into this parable. A man planted a vineyard. I'm just going to tell you what this parable represents as we work through it. So a man planted a vineyard. The man is God. And the vineyard is Israel. And let it out to tenants. Let it out means rented it out. This was a common thing in Jesus' day. Something they saw all the time. A man would build a vineyard. And he might not even live in that town, but he would then rent it to uh, vine growers, those who would cultivate it, and then take a percentage of whatever fruits they got from the vineyard. And he let it out to tenants. Now, who are the tenants? The tenants are the leaders in Israel, the leaders of the vineyard and went into another country for a long while. Now, a long while represents this Old Testament time where they had many tenants, many leaders in Israel. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. Now, the servants are who? They're the prophets, right? They sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the leaders of Israel, the tenants, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, another prophet, but they also treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. And this is the history of what Israel did with the prophets. Matthew kind of sums it up in Matthew 23, 33. He says this to the leadership in Israel. You, you serpents, you brood of vipers, you're the children of the snake, he's saying. How are you to escape from being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you'll kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and, and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in this parable, Jesus is recounting Israel's relationship with God and God's prophets up until this 
point. And then in verse 13, he says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. I'm confident you see that the son is Christ. Jesus, over and over again already in Luke, predicting that he would be arrested, that he'd be flogged, that he would be beaten, and that he would be crucified. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now, that might not make sense to you, but in uh, the Jewish traditions, uh, they had a law that said if an owner of a vineyard dies and doesn't have a son, then after working it for three years, it becomes uh, those who've been working the vineyard. It becomes theirs. And so the assumption of the workers when the sun showed up, they must have expected that the owner wouldn't send his son, but he would show up himself. And so the owner must be dead. And if we kill the son, then the vineyard will ultimately become ours and we don't need to send any of our prophets off. The sun is the one thing, the last thing standing between those tenants and full material profit. Get rid of the sun. We get power, we get control, we get money. And that's how it was for the leadership in Israel. If we can get rid of the sun, then we can get our popularity back. Then we can get our business back of fleecing the people. And so... He then says in verse 13, ask the question, Jesus asked the question, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is his heir, let us kill him so that an inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They threw him out of the vineyard. They threw him out of... Jerusalem. They threw him to the Romans to be killed. He's going to die outside the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, in Luke, he just tells us. But in Matthew's account, they respond to the question like this. They said to him, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And then Jesus reads to them, Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing 
And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. That's Matthew's account. They walk into the noose of Jesus's parable. Luke, we have Jesus saying in verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard, the word is akuo, which doesn't mean just to hear in the common sense, but it means to hear and understand. <laughs> so when they realize that they are the wicked tenants and they realize their destruction, they said, surely not, or may it never be. This is the worst case scenario. This is our nightmare. May it never be. This would be the worst ending to the story of our lives. Those uneducated bums that don't keep the Sabbath rightly, they're going to be given the kingdom. Christ is the Son. No way. What does He mean when He says that He'll give the vineyard to others? John MacArthur says, quote, the point is not that the Gentiles were replacing the Jews or that the church was replacing Israel. There were Gentile proselytes to Jerusalem and there were Jewish believers in the church. In fact, many of the apostles were Jews. But there would be a change in leadership from the corrupt apostate incumbent rulers of Israel to the apostles and the disciples of Jesus Christ. The transition, MacArthur states, had already begun. In Luke 9, Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. He never gave that power to the leaders in Israel at that time. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Uh, departing, they began to going through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. In Matthew 13, 11, Jesus said to the disciples, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. MacArthur goes on to say the disciples had been given knowledge of the mysteries. That is, the now revealed but formally hidden truths concerning the kingdom of God contained in the New Testament. They were to be the new custodians of divine truth, thus the earthly stewards of the kingdom salvation. In fact, after Peter's affirmation that Jesus was the Christ, you remember what Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, that testimony that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not have power against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter, with that profession that Jesus is the Christ, was handed the keys to the to heaven to the kingdom of God. That's why when we read the New Testament, we read things like this. Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us as apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. They were given special revelation. They wrote the New Testament. So when Paul talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The deposit of what? The stewardship of the mysteries of God, the gospel of Christ. And then he tells Timothy to avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. In 2 Timothy 1.13, he says, follow the pattern of the sounds, sound words that you heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And then in 2 Timothy 1.4, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus that what you have heard and seen in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men, meaning to elders and leaders in the church who will be able to teach others also. So there's a deposit that's given from Christ through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that is the foundation. Once you build the foundation... What do you do? You build on top of it. You don't build outside it. And so every elder, every church leader builds on a foundation already laid, given to those new tenants, the apostles. This is why we reject new prophecies, claiming to be on the level of Scripture that we often hear from our charismatic friends. Has the foundation been laid or not. Listen to Ephesians 2.18. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built, past tense, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The apostles weren't teaching their own words, their own ideas, but the Holy Spirit was bringing Christ's words to their remembrance and the things that Christ still had to teach to them so that the cornerstone is the thing that sets the foundation and then the apostles lay the foundation and we all build on top of it. And already in Ephesians, it's past tense. It's been laid. The foundation 
is down. And so when we think, what does he mean when he says he's going to give it to those who are producing the fruits of the kingdom or he's going to give this vineyard to others? Listen to how Peter brings this home. It, it's so beautiful. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter 2.1. I want you to see this. I want you to see how practical the theology is because Peter is sandwiching two practical things to do in light of this transition from the old stewards to the new stewards. So in 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Here's the practical command. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we know Peter has Psalm 118 in mind, right? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a what? Holy priesthood. They're being built up into the temple and they're going to be the workers of this temple? What did the priest do? The priest, you know, offered sacrifices on behalf of the people and they taught people the word of God. So you now, Peter's saying, that you're chosen by God. God has picked new tenants and they are to preach a message of the sacrifice so that they can be reconciled to God. You're priests. You don't have a background role. You have the very thing, the very message that can bring someone to Christ that they might live for all eternity. You yourselves are like living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So Peter's saying the way you live your life, the way you love each other and don't slander each other is also offering service and worship to Christ as his new priesthood. Just like in the Old Testament, when the priests were wicked of heart and took lightly their role that dishonored God, that did not bring worship to God. And then he says, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder re builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, why? Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. To stumble over Jesus Christ is to stumble over the word of God as it encroaches in on your life. 
You were born rebellious, wanting to be autonomous. And the Word of God comes. And I don't know if you've ever wore sandals and been walking full speed and, and jabbed your toe into a stone. It's not a fun thing to do. And when we as sinners come to the Word of God, come to Jesus Christ, there is a sense where it hurts. We don't want this. We don't like this. We want to curse this. And, it, and so he says they stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. But you, Christians, are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All right, that's all nice. What are we to do then in light of that identity in Christ? Look at what he says. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, just like the priests were called to do. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And then what does he do? He gets really practical. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, meaning you're living a dangerous life now in Christ. This world's not your home. It's against you. You can try to be one of those half-believing Christians that just says everything's fine and the world's not really against me and it doesn't really cost me anything. I pick a church like it's a country club. As long as they don't get up on my toes too much, then I'm good. But what does he say? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's dying to yourself. Which wage war against your soul? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. So all that to try to unpack what he means when he says to give the vineyard to others. And then he says in verse 17, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? <laughs> So he says, the owner's going to destroy those wicked tenants. They say, oh, may it never be. And then what does he do? He goes to ultimate authority. He goes to the word of God. Goes to Psalm 118. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. And Scott read Psalm 118, one of the most beautiful psalms. When, when all my enemies are surrounding me, I'll be okay, for the Lord does valiant, valiantly. The, the Lord will win. Though the Lord disciplines me, yet he will not put me to death. And then it gets to the part where he says, the stone that the builders rejected. You know, you're trying to build a foundation. You need a perfectly 90-degree cornerstone. You might look through thousands of stones to get a perfect one because if you're one degree off, the whole building's going to be off. Reject. Reject. Here comes Christ. Reject. 
The rejected stones are all forgotten. But not this one. It's not over when they reject the cornerstone. This one, God's going to build His temple out of. God's going to build His priesthood from this stone. And like I said, Jesus, He's a lightning rod. He's a watershed man. You receive Him, you will not be put to shame. You reject Him, He will crush you. And this is the message that we've been given. We preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as well as the results of rejection of that Christ. When we preach the gospel, we're, we're not merely saying, hey, I want you to think about something interesting. That doesn't make sense with the word herald and proclaim. If Christ is our king and we're servants of him and we're called ambassadors of Christ, then we need to herald that message with the good news of the grace that is there for sinners and remind them of what happens when Christ returns again if they reject him. You see, you can't take that stumbling block away. You're probably familiar with uh, seeker-sensitive churches. Churches that in the name of love want to take away the stumbling. And usually the idea here is like in Romans 14, 13, a verse is taken out of context when Paul says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of the brother. And so churches say, that's our church model. We never want to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in front of Christians or in front of non-believers for that matter. And we got verses to prove it. But Romans 14 is talking about eating food sacrificed to idols or arguing about which day you worship on. And Paul's saying it's not worth taking these secondary things and making them primary things and dividing brothers. But let me tell you, dear friends, there can never be a church that gets rid of the stumbling stone that really hurts. Because the stumbling stone is Jesus Christ. And when you take Jesus Christ, you take Him at His word. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And so we need to preach Christ when it costs us. We need to preach Christ when we're not a big popular church. We need to preach Christ when you lose your job. Because the true Jew is one inwardly of the heart that doesn't fear man, but seeks to honor and please God. So, when I say, you need Sunday morning 
worship. You need fellowship throughout the week as Christians. You need it because you've chosen in Christ the most dangerous life in this world that you could choose. Yes, it could cost you your life, but he who loses his life will find his life. And the response to this, I just got to look at, look at verse 19. The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. They couldn't stand it. This is the worst news we've ever heard, and I think deep down inside, they kind of know he's right. So they perceived that he had told this parable against them, and they feared the people. So once again, from the beginning of his ministry to the end, they're plotting to how can they get rid of Christ. So here's the questions I want you to ask. How and when do I stumble upon Christ in his authority? You see, if we only read the Bible and say, oh yeah, that's what they did, and we don't know how to apply it, it does us no good. But let's be honest, Christ is king of your hearts, is he not? Are you fully sanctified? Do you still have sin that needs to be fought against? Can you grow in sanctification? Then guess what? We keep bumping in to Christ. So when, I want you to think about it. How and when do I stumble into Christ and his authority? Young people, it might be when you start dating or you want to date. And all of a sudden, the leadership of your church or your parents or godly people around you say, this is the wise way to do it. Ah, what do they know? Ah, does that verse really mean that? You can't specifically show me a verse in the Bible where we can't live in separate bedrooms, right? It's things like this that we bump into it. If we were to ask the question, where is Christ's authority on earth? We would say ultimately it's in his word, right? I want to say in his church, but how does the church come about? Through his word. Until the word's preached, you don't have a church. But a church is nothing without Christ being king of it in his word. So Christ's authority is seen on earth in his word, in church, membership, in the leadership of the church, in governments, in husbands, in parents, in bosses. Just read Ephesians. Goes through all these. We can be in rebellion to God when we're wrongly, sinfully in rebellion to whatever authorities God's put in our life. So when I stumble upon Christ, do I tend to reject or receive Him? Because those are the two options. It really is. And I just want to help you in praying through this this week. Just take this list and, and ask yourself. These are rejecting responses. And yes, as believers, we have to fight to receive the word every day. We do. A rebellious heart. Self-justifying. Twisting of scripture. 
defensiveness. Reinventing Jesus that's okay with what we're doing. Isolating from the church and those who are speaking Christ's words to us. Deflecting by pointing out the faults of others. Ah, I bumped into Christ, but look at what they're doing. I would never do that. I might. Distracting oneself. Denial. Let's just get busy. I don't want to think about that. I just want to get on to doing something else. Or it could be hard-hearted rebellion. I know it's wrong. I know Jesus wants me to do something else, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Receiving responses. Receiving Christ when His authority bumps into you. When you, when you bump into Christ, the King. A submissive heart. Confession and repentance. Faith in what's revealed to you in God's Word. Humbling oneself. See, we can come to God's Word to make our authority stronger and win our argument. Or we can always approach God's Word saying, I'm putting myself under this thing. Whatever it says. Willingness to suffer. Believing God's goodness, even when maybe it requires suffering. Worship. Pushing into church. And I guess this got... Did it get cut off? Yeah. Pushing into church and those who are speaking Christ's words to you. And I'm sure there's hundreds of more. It's my prayer that you know Christ in a way that you've recognized your sin, received Him as the sacrifice in the place for your sin which you deserve to bear the wrath of God. You see, when Christ is bearing the wrath of the Father on the cross, we do, like the song said, learn about our evil and our sin and what it costs to pay for it. So my prayer is, is that you realize no one will be put to shame who put their trust in Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so it's my prayer that you would receive Him. And Christian, maybe you've been in a state of rebellion. That you would tremble before His Word. Look at how crazy it is. Look how exciting it is living the different life. Look at how God might use you. Rather than lamenting the times you live in, look at the place, the reality that you're alive and you've been given the Holy Spirit. And what does God want to do through your faithful witness to Christ, through your loving and sharing the gospel and warning of people? Father, I pray you would do this in our hearts. Lord, I pray that our view of Christ would be lifted up, that our worship of you would be lifted up. I thank you that you preserve Christ the greatest teacher of all times, the very words of God, this teaching for us. Pray that it would be fruitful, that we would produce the fruits that the Holy Spirit intended, fruits of the kingdom which bring glory to you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.